If you have your Bibles today, we're in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 and 17. Title of the message, All Scripture is Given by Inspiration of God. The text is this. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, in other words, what we believe, for reproof. Reproof means to rebuke or to censure, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Last week, I preached a sermon on how the Old Testament came together. Of course, that's very important. Today, I'm going to preach a sermon on how the New Testament came together, what happened and what followed that and what was the next thing and how how did the Lord pull it all together? Well, the first collection of New Testament scriptures was made up of some of Paul's epistles. This collection was already forming in the latter part of the first century. By the second century, a fellow named Marcion had added to this collection Luke. He had decided that that's all that ought to be in the Bible. Uh, He called it the Marcionite Canon. This is the Bible that everybody ought to use. And this is all that people ought to use. Well... Let me tell you a little bit about Marcion. He was born in 110 A.D. He was the son of a wealthy bishop. Marcion uh, received all the money that his father had. He was very, very wealthy. So he went around to the Christian churches, the early churches, and gave large amounts of money. And in response to that, he wanted people to follow his theological thinking. Uh, He told them what books that they ought to read and uh, what those books meant. Uh, In 144 A.D., at age 34, Marcion had caused such a stir. His teachings were the subject of many investigations and many condemnations. We need to know what Marcion did believe that made him such a dangerous heretic. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was an evil creator, that Jesus came basically to destroy the evil God of the Old Testament. Marcion believed that this evil God did, in fact, reveal his will through the Old Testament. Thus, he believed in the inspiration of the Old Testament from divine sources, although from an evil source. Marcion's canon was Paul's writings and the book of Luke. Marcion accepted only the gospel of Luke, to the exclusion of the other three Gospels. He also accepted all of Paul's writings, but he would 
get out his scissors or knives or whatever he used and cut out of Paul's works anything that was a quote from or about the Old Testament. He just would cut that out. He didn't think that was right. Well, he made a strong case for what he believed, and people listened, and people rejected it, and councils rejected it. Uh, He rejected all of the other books of the Bible, except Luke and the letters of Paul. Marcion firmly believed that the Old Testament God did exist, and that he was the creator of of the world. The problem was that what he created was evil. Well, there might be a time when all of you that are here today that are real Bible students, I know we have a lot of folks like that in our church that really enjoy studying the Word of God. You can go on the internet and you can put in the word Marcion. And you will be amazed how many things will come up. Maybe it's the Marcionite uh, canon that would come up. Read all of those things. It would be very, very interesting for you. Uh, He picked out the spiritual writings that he liked. He determined what was spiritual and what wasn't. Well, the problem with that is in our text today. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what it says, not Marcion. God. Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Well, uh, Marcion was uh, put down by every uh, group that met. And eventually, of course, uh, he gave up. Well, in 1837, a man uh, came along with the exact same ideas that Marcion had. His name was Bullinger. He was a heretic. Uh, He uh, said all the things that he thought, and there were councils that were formed that spoke against him and that rebuked him. And it said that he was a heretic and that he should not be teaching in any Christian churches. Well, already at this point, the Gospel of Mark had been written about A.D. 67. And the Gospels of Matthew and Luke followed within 10 or 20 years. John's Gospel was the last to be written about A.D. 90. AD 90 was the end of the gospel uh, books, and these, of course, were the basic works of the New Testament. These were the works that were spread around because it was the story of Jesus. And each of the gospel accounts has a wonderful record about what Jesus did, what he was, what he did for people, and all of that. It emphasizes, John's book emphasizes, the Judean ministry of Jesus, 
which the other evangelists did not record. And it contains long sections of thoughtful reflection upon the meaning of the person of Jesus and the Word of God made flesh. Although, for the most part, the epistles were written down first and the gospel, however, was placed first in the canon. The gospel material has been quoted and has been preached in the churches from the very beginning of Christianity, of course, until today. These books were the logical forerunners of the epistles and the background against which they were written and understood. Ignatius, a second century writer, tells us that it was customary in that day for churches to read from the gospel and then from the apostles. That was the order. Even as the synagogue, you remember last week, I hope, the synagogue worshipers came together and they would read from the law and then the prophets and then they would sing a hymn from the book of Psalms. The parallel is obvious. The gospels were the foundation of the new covenant. Even as the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, was the foundation of the Old Testament. The apostles bore witness to its meaning in their own lives and in their own historical situations. Even as the prophets bore witness to the law and the word of God in their time. By the end of the first century, people were traveling around, of course, and they would get to a different location and they would hear what was being read, what was being preached in that location. And then they would move uh, to somewhere else or they would go somewhere else or someone from somewhere else would come where they were and teach and preach the Gospels and teach and preach the uh, letters, the epistles uh, that had been written. And it was a clearly developing New Testament canon. Uh, the folks that traveled around uh, brought the news that people wanted to hear. You know, the Bible speaks to our hearts, our minds, our souls, and it redirects us along in life. Amen. All of us get on the wrong road every once in a while. Some of us, it takes us about 50 years to get on the right road for the first time. Well, the New Testament canon is, of course, what we need. You know, we all have various kinds of needs, but the spiritual needs that we have can be met by the New Testament canon. Well, the apostles bore witness to the meaning of the Gospels in their own lives and in their historical situations. Even as the prophets had borne witness to the law and the word of God in their time, at the end of the first century, it had all sort of come together. There was a third group of New Testament writings 
as we have seen in the Hebrew Bible. The writings of the Apostle Paul had been added very early. The first letter of Peter, the book of Acts, the epistles of James and John. However, until the end of the fourth century, the churches debated a third group of writings that included the book of Hebrews, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. They had trouble with people who misinterpreted the apocalyptic language of Revelation. It's still, of course, uh, confusing people today. Uh, many churches would have nothing to do with it because the text was so terribly misused. Other churches had large numbers of members who had heard and uh, yielded to the call of Caesar. The soldiers of Caesar would spread out through the Roman Empire. They would come to a town and they'd line up all the people. And they'd say, we want you to burn incense and we want you to say that Caesar is Lord. Well, of course, there were some Christians there. And they didn't want to say that. So when they started down the line of all the people from that uh, village, maybe the first one or second one or third one would say, no, I don't believe that Caesar is Lord. I believe that Jesus is Lord. Well, immediately they took out a sword and killed that person. Then they'd ask the next person, we want you to burn incense and say that Caesar is Lord. And then they'd look beside them at that dead body and they'd think, I'm a Christian, what should I do? Some of them said, no, I believe Jesus is Lord. And the sword came and they were immediately killed. And then they would continue down the line. Some of the people that had represented themselves as Christians, uh, said, oh, we believe in Caesar. We, we'll burn incense to anybody you want us to burn incense to. And that's exactly what they did. They were called the Lapsi, the group that were supposedly Christians but denied Jesus were called Lapsi. They had repudiated Christ with their lips. Whatever they meant in their hearts, uh, they kept in their hearts. They didn't let any of that out about believing in Jesus. The books of Hebrews and Second Peter very clearly stated that anyone who renounced Christ and trampled underfoot the blood of the eternal covenant were in the wrong. And shouldn't have done that. The leaders said, and those two books said, that they had crucified Christ afresh. And that they were doomed spiritually. They could not be renewed again under repentance. Churches were filled with these lapsy people. And so, of course, their friends gathered around them and they tried to keep out the book of Hebrews and Second Peter. 
Because those books were super strong against the lapsy. Well, that continued on, of course, through the years. Finally, the self-authenticating Word of God in these writings kept speaking to the early church in such a way at all the churches that such power was evident because of their reading those books that they decided that they could not reject those books no matter who said what. Now, you can pick up a book at the bookstore and read it and say, well, that was a pretty good mystery or that was a pretty good this, that was a pretty good that. But it's until you get down to the religious section and you get out a Bible and you start reading it and you say to yourself, you know, I've never read anything like this before. What in the world is this about? And they read it and the Holy Spirit begins to work in their heart and in their life. And they begin to really think about what they're reading. And they say, well, I think I'm going to read this whole book. And so they keep reading. Well, that's what happened in that day. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were beginning to get these canonical books from the early setting. And they were making a tremendous difference in their hearts and lives. They were... They were empowered by the Spirit of God. And they began to tell their brothers and sisters and parents and children, you know, you've got to trust in Jesus. You have got to line yourself up with what this book says. Because this book has an answer for all of the issues and problems and difficulties that we've had all of our lives. This is the book that we need. And then they'd read another one of the books from this early canon. And they would say, well, this book is as good as the last book. This is really something. And then they'd read all the books. And it changed the Roman world. It changed it. Many historians believe that the Roman world uh, fell because of Christians. You know, it was the Christians that would walk out into the middle of the arena and they would bow their heads in prayer and the lions would be let loose and they'd come out and tear those people apart. But the people would pray. Well, that wasn't any fun to watch. You know, the people in the stands wanted to see people run away from the lions and try and fight back with the lions and all that. And they didn't do that. They just went out to the center of the stadium, got down on their knees, and began to pray. So after a while, they stopped doing that. Because the crowds fell off to hardly anybody came. Sometimes the impression is left that a great ecumenical council sat down and decided which books were going to go into the New Testament. Some people uh, believe that. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth than that. That's not what happened at all. 
It has also been claimed that the Roman Catholic Church existed before there was a New Testament and that our canonical New Testament was determined upon the authority of the church in Rome. Well, on the contrary, our New Testament was completed hundreds of years, hundreds of years before there was a Roman Catholic Church. Our New Testament had been entirely written and entirely received all over the Christian world centuries before there was a Roman Pope or a Roman hierarchy. By A.D. 367, we find a list of 27 books coming together. These are the books that the people decided changed their heart. These are the books that they wanted to share with their neighbors and family members and friends. These were the books that redirected their lives. And, of course, everybody could see that. Everybody knew that something radical had happened in their life. And so these books uh, became very, very, very important. Well, this list was prepared in an Easter letter by Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria. This man had been exiled from his home about seven different times. Uh, He was a Christian, and he got into trouble, and they would run him out of town, and he would go to another town. Uh, Some have written that uh, he uh, traveled probably more than anybody because he went from church to church and different sections of the world at that time, one at a time. He had been to more churches around the Mediterranean Sea, they believe, than any other man uh, that was living. He, He was not in a position to tell all of those churches what they should receive as authoritative scripture. He didn't have any license to say that. He didn't have the authority from anybody to tell all of them that. But he was in a position to report what Christians were generally accepting as the authoritative New Testament writings. That is exactly what his letter did. In his letter, he had the 27 books that are still the books that we have in our canon today. Well, he commends these books everywhere he goes to the Alexandrian Christians because he had found that these books generally accepted by the apostolic churches everywhere were there to stay. Nobody could do anything about it. These were the books that were making a difference. Now let me go back and say that the Lord directed the individuals that wrote the Old Testament. The Lord directed the people that wrote every book in the New Testament. The Lord did it. Marcion didn't do it. Bollinger didn't do it. And people today that have those views, they didn't do it. God did it. 
And that needs to be known by everyone. God led them. Well, they wrote the books. And then those books went into the churches. And people were changed. And people were blessed. The Holy Spirit of God worked in their heart. I believe under the direction of God. And down through the years, there have been all kinds of people that have said, we're going to do away with the Bible. Well, guess what? Every year the number of Bibles printed goes up. They haven't uh, done away with the Bible. In the year 397, a local council at Carthage, North Africa, named the same 27 books as those received generally by the Christian churches of the Mediterranean world. There was no general ecumenical council that made this decision. That isn't the way it happened. There was no universal ecclesiastical decree that came from Rome or anywhere else that made this decision. It was a fact of history that the early Christian community received these New Testament books and these only because they heard in them the authoritative voice of God. It was not an accident of history. It was the Christian confession of faith that God was active in this historical process, as he still is today. That the faith that God put into the hearts and lives of people was active in this historical process to preserve the record of the redeeming work of Christ and the early witness to him. The Gospels told about what Jesus taught, what he did, what he said. It zeroed in on that. The epistles came along to explain what Jesus had done more fully. Our Bible is a miracle of God's love acting in communities of faith and acting in the believing hearts of men. For evangelical Christians today, the Bible is the authority for all that matters in faith and practice. This authority rests upon Christ, to whom all authority has been given in heaven and in earth. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. God revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And the Bible is the inspired account of of this historical revelation in Christ and the witness of the prophet and the apostle to its meaning. The Old Testament prepares for the coming of this revelation of Christ. It got us ready. The Old Testament is crucially important. All these prophecies that were given, they all came true. Millions of people trusted in Christ Because they knew that no other denomination, no other religion, no other uh, sect of people, no other uh, failed group had ever come out with any ideas that surpassed these or that came anywhere near these. The New Testament records what happens and bears witness to its impact in the lives of 
of the early Christians. This written revelation is found in no other book. In no other book. There's no other book that has all the prophecies of the Old Testament telling what's going to happen. And then it happens. That's in no other book. And this accounts for the exclusive authority of the Bible as the written word of God. It gives us the authoritative account of God's great plan of redemption. From the covenant with Israel to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It even points forward to a victorious culmination when in the Lord's time, The King of kings and Lord of lords will return to take every one of us home that know and love him. For a Christian, the most thrilling journey that you will ever take is through the pages of the Word of God. Today, maybe there are some folks in the house who would like to come and join with our church. We'd love to have you. The doors are open. Perhaps there are some people here today that have read the Bible and it has changed your life and you want to commit yourself to following Him. Maybe you'd like to come today and make a public profession of your faith. If you'd like to come and kneel here on the front pew and pray, one of our staff will come and pray with you. We want to ask today for you to make a decision, if you haven't made it before, that you're going to take a strong stand for Jesus. We're going to stand, we're going to sing, and hopefully the Lord will lead in each heart. Let's stand together.